Well, today we're continuing the story of the birth of King Jesus. And I'm glad we just sang that glorious song about heaven because this morning, because of the text we're in, we're going to encounter grief and sorrow at a level that really is almost incomprehensible. Most, if not all of you, know the grief and sorrow in the, in the death of a loved one. You can think back to it and you know it's so mind-numbing, it's so painful. And the reason is we're not built to deal with death. We were created by God to live forever with one another. So death doesn't have a category in our souls. It doesn't fit. I'm telling you this up front because we're, we're going to take a journey together through the text of Matthew chapter 2, verses 16 through 18. It really is going to take us into the darkest, most painful regions of our hearts. Death and grief on a level that's beyond our ability to grasp, a, a level of emotional and spiritual trauma that takes the, the grieving person beyond just crying but to weeping, and beyond just weeping, to sobbing, and beyond just sobbing, to wailing, and beyond wailing, to screaming, and beyond screaming, to just distress and torment. It's beyond consolation. There are no silver linings to the cloud. There are no positives. There is no hope. This is a journey into the utterly impenetrable thick darkness of a room. A room of endless pain in which there's nothing but anguish, nothing but loneliness. We're going to encounter grief at a level that none of us has ever personally experienced. Even in the loss of a spouse or even in the loss of a child, probably the the two most difficult griefs we ever experience as human beings. And what this journey into this dark room of grief and sadness will do, I'm praying, is that it will highlight our desperate need for a God who rises above our grief, who can restore things that are unrestorable, who can move easily between the realms of life and death, and who alone is capable of rescuing us from the agonizing tragedy that is the human existence which always ends in death. We're going to organize our thoughts around that dark room. First, we'll talk about entering the dark room. Entering the dark room, Matthew 2.16 begins. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged. We're here back in the story of the, the birth of Christ. How was Herod tricked? Do you recall the, the wise men in verses 11 and 12? After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi departed for their own country by another way. Looking into this room, we're introduced just to the beginnings of sorrow and grief. And of course, these exist in the world because of sin. Because the hearts of human beings, all of us as descendants of Adam, We're all turned against God. The Bible says all of us are by nature children of wrath. That's who we are. And in our text here, this sin is personified in the hatred, quite literally, of a baby. And even worse, the hatred of the baby who is by all rights the true king of heaven and earth. 
Now, we tend to assume that King Herod's rage was against the wise men, but it was God who warned the wise men. And in reality, Herod's rage ought to be credited as being against God himself. This is a wicked man enraged at God. And if you know anything about King Herod's history, which we've gone over some in the past, his history of cruel and mass slaughter when it serves his purposes, we take a deep breath because whatever he's going to do is going to be awful. It's going to be terrible. And so we've entered this dark room. But second, as we look back, we see the door beginning to close. You see the door closing behind you in this room of grief and despair. Verse 16, Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time which he had carefully determined from the Magi. And now we move beyond anticipation and, and this fearfulness of what's going to happen. And we go to just shock that any man could commit this act. This horrifying thing is beyond really our ability to grasp. Now, Bethlehem was a small town. The murder of any child is tragic. But the fact that 100% of the baby and toddler boys were, were murdered, it means that the collective grief and the anguish of this small town is, is immeasurable. In a town this size, you couldn't go anywhere without hearing weeping and wailing and sobbing all over the town and all over the countryside. And in a culture and time in which most families have many, many children, the possibility of some families having two boys, a toddler and a baby boy, both murdered, that was very real. Very likely there were some young families with just one baby boy, their eldest and only son took him from them taken from them, and the the cruel sword of a soldier piercing a child that can't even move on its own yet. They're innocent victims. And just a little historical note here, these are the first to die for the sake of Christ. These babies. It's right about now as the door is closing behind us and, and the darkness begins to overwhelm that it's tempting to question God. It's tempting to say, why would God allow the slaughter of these innocents? Why would God allow this to be part of his plan? And the temptation is to fall into the trap that Job eventually fell into, that of questioning God's right to do as God pleases. Job 38, beginning in verse 1, after Job questioned God's right, Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Now gird up your loins like a man and I will ask you and you will make me know. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have no understanding. Because now as the door swings shut and closes in this room of grief and sorrow, every person, every person encountering this story is faced with a decision. And that is that we must trust that God is still in control. We must trust that He's able to rise above and reclaim even the horrific deaths of so many babies in and all around Bethlehem. And obviously for us, this is not a theoretical question, is it? In our time, we live in a nation that collectively has murdered 65 million babies. The believer in Christ has no choice but to believe that God is never defeated. God is never overcome by the end of one life on earth and certainly God is never overcome 
by the end of 65 million lives on earth. But as the door in this dark room swings closed and it's closed all the way, try to put yourself in the place of someone just walking along the streets of Bethlehem, crying and weeping and wailing just everywhere all around you. Neighbors consoling neighbors, young mothers holding the bloody lifeless bodies of their baby boys for the last time, young fathers reluctantly wrapping the little one's bodies for burial all over the town. And don't think just of the grief. Think of the anger. Think of the the absolute rage, the sense of total injustice that a tyrant can just walk in and decree the death of my boy. And from a human standpoint, there was nothing anyone could do. Because anyone who tried to stand up to Herod was simply murdered himself. That was his mode of operating. But the grief and the sorrow experienced by those young mothers and fathers is eclipsed and it's overshadowed by the grief that's even higher. The grief personified in a mother long dead. A mother whose grief would be worse than possibly we could ever imagine. We've entered the dark room. We've watched as the, the door closes behind us and now the door is closed and now the, the blackness of sorrow turns into total disorientation, total helplessness, into that feeling of being swallowed by thick gloom, the feeling that it would be better to be numbed or it would be better to not even exist, the same feeling that Job had when he asked God in Job 10.18, why had he even been born in the first place if all it was for was to experience anguish and pain beyond comprehension, in Job's case, due to the loss of 10 children all at once? Because now, In our text, one woman is brought forth as being so sorrowful that she is weeping, as it were, from the grave. Verse 17. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, and she was refusing to be comforted because they were no more. Now, for the third time already here in Matthew's Gospel, we have an announcement of a fulfillment of prophecy. And to help us understand this fulfillment, I want to do a quick review from last time we talked about this, about the nature of messianic fulfillments of prophecy, because it's a little bit complex. A couple of weeks ago, I gave you three general principles about Bible prophecy related to the prophecies of Christ finding their fulfillment in Matthew's Gospel, and if you'll bear with me for a moment, I just want to review those. We said that the first principle is that the New Testament always uses the Old Testament in its original context. Always. Every time. The New Testament never makes up or takes out of context the original meaning. The second principle we said is that Bible prophecy includes several variations, but it never alters or redirects the, the original meaning of the Old Testament. It includes variations. For example... There's the most obvious variation of direct fulfillment. Direct fulfillment are the times, for example, the the prophetic prediction of Jesus' birth being in Bethlehem from Micah 5 verse 2. It's a clear, this is going to happen and here's the fulfillment. But then we have the variation of partial and completed prophecies. Partial and completed prophecies. We have numbers of examples. For example, in Luke chapter 4, 
Jesus quoted Isaiah 61.1 and the first half of verse 2 as being fulfilled in him at that moment, but he stopped short because the rest of verse 2 speaks of the coming rule of Messiah, which hasn't happened yet. Another example of partial and completed prophecy in Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, he quotes Joel chapter 2, the coming of the Holy Spirit as being fulfilled. But this is only partially fulfilled at Pentecost because the rest of Joel 2 speaks of the coming day of the Lord, the accompanying signs of judgment, the the moon turned to blood and so forth. You have the variation of typology. An example of typology would be Abel, who was killed by his brother Cain. He's shown to be a type, meaning a a foreshadowing, a, a precursor of Christ in that he was the very first one to suffer for the sake of righteousness. Matthew 23, 34, and 35 tell us this connection. Hebrews chapter 3 is an example of typology. Moses is a type, a foreshadowing of Christ. And then you have the variation of connections or parallels. And this is the focus of our third general principle. God sovereignly orchestrates historical parallels. He sovereignly orchestrates historical parallels. There are many, many instances in Scripture of correlations, of interconnections to demonstrate God's sovereign design, His steering of all of redemptive history. And for example, this is seen here in verse 17 in the word fulfill. The Greek word for fulfill used here and also in chapter 2 verse 15 has a wide variety of uses depending on the context. It can mean to fill up, to make full, to realize, to bring to realization, to complete, to bring to pass, to accomplish, to consummate. It does at times refer to a direct fulfillment of an Old Testament prophecy or prediction, such as the birthplace of Christ. But in Matthew's gospel, four times, including here in this text, fulfill is used to link Israel's history with events in the life of Christ, with a greater fulfillment, but with a clear link to the past. Why is this the case? Why does God do this? Well, first of all, there are no coincidences. There are only divinely orchestrated parallels which give very, very clear evidence that God is sovereignly working. He's moving in redemptive history. Now, why is this so important? We said this a couple of weeks ago. Who are the first recipients of the Gospel of Matthew? First recipients are believing Jews. You know what Jews don't believe in? They don't believe in coincidence. These parallels, these correlations are meant to bring the reader to a greater assurance of their faith and they're meant to bring a non-believer to faith. Matthew's gospel in particular written first to the Jewish believer in Christ to confirm that what they've believed about Christ is true and it's true from of old. So those are the three general principles that we understood from last time. The New Testament always uses the Old in its original context. Bible prophecy includes several variations, but never alters or redirects the original meaning. And God sovereignly orchestrates historical parallels. Well, what we have here in Matthew 2, 15 through 17, is another instance of an historical parallel. And it's from the book of Jeremiah. Now, Normally, I would say, turn to Jeremiah. I'm going to tell you to stay in the moment and don't turn to Jeremiah. Because the best way to understand this is to just stay with me and stay in the story. Just listen. Because we're in this dark, disorienting room. You don't have any light to turn to Jeremiah anyway. So, you're in this room with grief and anguish. And just follow the story. 
The prophecy of Jeremiah that Matthew is referencing is from Jeremiah 31.15, and the wording is almost identical. In the Legacy Standard Bible, Jeremiah 31.15 says, Thus says Yahweh, a voice is heard in Ramah, wailing and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, we have to establish a couple of important details to understand what's happening in Jeremiah 31.15. First of all, you recall the person of Rachel. She was the beloved wife of Jacob. Rachel was Jacob's first and true love. You remember that Jacob was tricked by Rachel's father Laban into marrying Rachel's older sister Leah, but Rachel was Jacob's true love. Rachel's life was one of pain. It was a, it was a life of tragedy. She couldn't have children for years, and when the Lord did open her womb, she gave birth to the best of all the 12 sons of Jacob, Joseph, the one who would go on to save his entire family from famine as the prime minister of Egypt. And young Rachel got pregnant for the second time, but she died in childbirth, giving birth to Benjamin, who would never know his mother. And although Jacob would later rename the infant as Rachel was dying, she had named the newborn Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow. And that's how her life ended. That sums up the life of Rachel a life of sorrow. In the eyes of the Israelite, Rachel is seen with great honor. She is seen very much as the symbolic mother of all of Israel. Although she is only mother to two of the twelve sons of Jacob, Rachel stands as the mother of the chosen nation of God. And in fact, many times in the Old Testament, Israel is given a nickname. It's given this nickname by God. The nickname is Ephraim. It was one of Rachel's grandsons by Rachel, by Joseph. It's as if he's calling Israel Rachel's boy. There's a second detail, and that is about the place that's referenced here, a voice is heard in Ramah. Ramah is one of the traditional sites of Rachel's tomb. Genesis 35, 19 says she was buried at or near Bethlehem, which is south of Jerusalem, while Ramah is north of Jerusalem. There's probably better evidence that she was married, buried near Bethlehem. But because of Jeremiah 31.15, Rachel is heavily associated with Ramah, regardless of where she's actually buried. But the town of Ramah is a major, major landmark in the history of Israel. And I want to work my way toward that. So kind of keep the town of Ramah in the back of your mind. We have to go back farther in history. God used the empire of Babylon as his instrument of justice against Israel for their idolatry and their rebellion. And on three different occasions, each with growing intensity, Jews were taken captive to Babylon. Each time the southern kingdom of Judah rebelled, this included the tribes of Judah and Benjamin, each time they rebelled against Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon would come against them. The first time happened around 605 B.C. The second time happened around 597 B.C. And the third and final nail in the coffin in 586 B.C. And every time, Nebuchadnezzar would take Jews from their homeland. In fact, the first time in 605 was when the young teenager Daniel and his three friends were all taken to spend the rest of their lives in Babylon serving a foreign king. And the last time Nebuchadnezzar came, he destroyed Jerusalem, he tore down the temple, he had laid siege to Jerusalem for over a year to the point that the people inside were starving and when he took the city, he killed almost everybody. 
2 Kings 24, 14 says he only left the poorest of the land behind. But we can read between the lines and we can see who else he left behind. 2 Kings 24, 16 says that Nebuchadnezzar took all the valiant men, 7,000 of them, all the skilled craftsmen, 1,000 of them, and all the young men who could be soldiers. Verse 14 of 2 Kings 24 gives a round number of 10,000 young men carried off into captivity. So by process of elimination, who got left behind? The old men and all the mothers. All the mothers got left behind, and it didn't happen all at once. To gather 10,000, and by some counts, many more than 10,000, to gather 10,000 of the young men took time. So there was a method that the Babylonians used. They assigned a staging area, a gathering place, to gather all the captives, the place where the grieving mothers, who had lost much or all of the rest of their families to the sword of Babylon, or to starvation when Babylon attacked Jerusalem and the surrounding areas, these already grieving mothers who had lost their sons to death would watch their remaining sons, all of them, gather together in the final place they would ever see each other again for the rest of their lives. Mothers weeping for their children who have died and waiting the agonizing wait of seeing their sons go off into captivity, never to be seen again. Thousands of weeping mothers. All the captives and ostensibly their following mothers gathered at the place they would be separated forever. And that gathering place was the city of Rama. And this is where the utter black darkness of the grief of the room we're trapped in is just inconceivable and beyond understanding. Why, why is that? Because if you think that the grief of each individual mother was bad enough, Jeremiah pictures Rachel weeping for her children because as the mother of of Israel, these are all her children, her sons and her grandsons and her great-grandsons and her great-great-grandsons and they're all gone. The ones who aren't dead are taken away. And so Rachel's pictured as being inconsolable. How do you comfort a mother who's lost so many who's lost all of her family, all of her sons, all of her grandsons, all of her great-grandsons, tens of thousands of descendants, all gone. This is grief that's beyond description. The survivors of the Jewish Holocaust in World War II experienced a level of grief that's beyond words. Maybe it helps us understand a little bit. One surviving woman named Edith tells her story She and her parents arrived at the concentration camp in Auschwitz in May of 1944. On day one, her mother was killed in the gas chambers shortly after her father was killed as well. And by God's grace, she survived the death camp. She married shortly thereafter at the age of 18 and began to have children immediately. But her grief was so profound and so deep that for a long time, she never even told her husband that she had been in Auschwitz. She eventually had to tell him But no one but her husband knew that she had ever been there. Not even her children. Later, one of her daughters told her that growing up in the home, all the kids knew that mom was sad. The kids knew that when Edith locked herself in the bathroom to cry and to sob for hours at a time, they just thought that was what normal families do. 
What the children learned was that there was a pervasive sadness in the home. It was never acknowledged. It was never explained. One of her three daughters, when her daughter was age 10, she was a voracious reader. She had read all the books in the local library. And so she started searching the family bookshelves and she inadvertently had found a book Edith had hidden that had pictures of Auschwitz and a picture of naked skeletal corpses piled in a heap. The little girl showed it to Edith, said, what's this? And Edith ran to the bathroom and vomited and sobbed all day. And at that moment, Edith's husband finally gathered the girls and he opened the book and he said, your mother was there. And so they understood. Edith had tried to hide her grief, but ultimately she couldn't. It was just too much. It was too overwhelming. Which makes me ask the question, why is Matthew making the connection under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in this account of Herod killing the baby boys of Bethlehem? Why is he plunging us not just into the grief of seeing the boys of Bethlehem die, but the never forgotten horror of all the young men of Israel either killed or taken away with the mother of Israel, Rachel, pictured as weeping literally from the grave? Well, Matthew isn't trying to explain what Jeremiah 31, 15 means. What he's showing is the significance, the correspondence, the, the, the togetherness, the parallel events that tell the reader that something of huge consequence, something of huge meaning is taking place with the birth of Christ. Matthew knew that the Jeremiah 31, 15 passage wasn't directly talking about the murder of babies in and around Bethlehem. Instead, he's showing a parallel that a massively important event has happened and there's a detail that we haven't pointed out yet. Because Jeremiah 31, 15 is just odd. It's inserted, it's, it's just out of place. Nothing around it is anything like Jeremiah 31, 15. It's, it's almost like somebody came in and just stuck it in there at the last minute. This verse which describes the horrific grief of Rachel as the representative mother of Israel this verse, this event recorded in Jeremiah 31.15 is a lament. It speaks of unspeakable grief, the dark room from which all light has been shut out. But listen, the lament in Jeremiah 31.15 that seems out of place, the reason it seems out of place is because it's placed there in the context of hope. Now we've entered the dark room of grief. The door is closed behind us. We've wept with the mothers of Israel and with Rachel as the mother of Israel who lost all her sons, thousands and thousands and thousands of them. But after the disorienting darkness, the seemingly senseless pain and agony, the door of the room cracks open just a little bit and a small ray of light pokes through. You see, in the very next verse, in Jeremiah 31, 16, God speaks to Rachel. He says, Restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. Your, it's a second person singular feminine pronoun, meaning God is speaking to one woman, to Rachel, the mother of Israel. How is this possible? How can the one who cannot be consoled, who has lost thousands and thousands and thousands of sons and grandsons, who refuses to be comforted, how can God say, stop crying? 
Thus says Yahweh, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For your work will be rewarded, declares Yahweh, and they will return from the land of the enemy. And there is hope for your future, declares Yahweh, and your children will return to their own territory. You see, Jeremiah 31.15, seeming just totally out of place, this verse that records Rachel weeping for her children, it's set into the larger context of Jeremiah chapter 30 through 33, which is called by Jews, the book of consolation. And the book of consolation is a section in Jeremiah of hope describing the spiritual salvation and the national restoration of Israel. And now the door of that dark room of grief and despair that's cracked open a little, with letting a little bit of light in, it's, it's beginning to open because Jeremiah 31 has glorious thoughts and promises from God. Jeremiah 31 verse 1, at that time declares Yahweh, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, then they shall be my people. Verse 4 says, Again I will build you, and you will be rebuilt, O virgin of Israel. Again you will take up your tambourines and go forth to the dances of those celebrating. Again you will plant vineyards on the hills of Samaria. The planters will plant and will enjoy them. For there will be a day when watchmen on the hills of Ephraim call out, Arise, and let us go up to Zion, to Yahweh our God that there is a day when the sons of Israel are back and they're going to Jerusalem to see God. God promises a glorious kingdom of peace. Beginning in verse 8, Behold, I am bringing them from the north country and I will gather them from the remote parts of the earth. Among them, the blind and the lame, the woman with child and she who is in labor with child together, a great assembly, they will return there. With weeping they will come. This is happy, happy tears. And by supplication I will lead them. I will make them walk by streams of water on a straight path in which they will not stumble. For I am a father to Israel and Ephraim, Rachel's boy, my firstborn. Hear the word of Yahweh, O nations, and declare in the coastlands far away and say, He who has dispersed Israel will gather him and keep him as a shepherd keeps his flock. For Yahweh has ransomed Jacob and redeemed him from the hand of him who is stronger than he. They will come and sing for joy on the height of Zion, and they will be radiant over the goodness of Yahweh, over the grain and the new wine and the oil. And over the young of the flock and the herd and their soul will be like a watered garden and they will never waste away again. Then the virgin will be glad in the dance and the young men and the old together for I will turn their their mourning into joy and will comfort them and give them their gladness of sorrow. I will fill the souls of the priests with richness and my people will be satisfied with my goodness, declares Yahweh. And in verse 20, God says that his heart yearns for Ephraim, my son, my darling child. God describes the future satisfaction and the rest of his people. In verse 24, And Judah and all its cities will inhabit it together, the farmer and they who go about with the flocks. For I will satisfy the weary soul and fill up every soul who wastes away. Then beginning in verse 35, just to make certain that we know that God keeps His promises. God makes a promise. He says that He will abandon Israel as soon as the universe implodes and as soon as mankind can measure all of creation. That's when He'll deny Israel. 
God is promising that he'll return the exiles home. This cannot, however, be speaking just of the return under Ezra and Nehemiah in the 5th century. This is a time when the people are living in total peace and prosperity and they may go to Jerusalem to see their king. If you read Ezra and Nehemiah, there is never a king in Jerusalem. The horrific pain and agony of Rachel in Jeremiah 31.15, this lament is set into the context of a future hope. Why is this important? Because that's exactly what's happening in Matthew chapter 2. Matthew 2 is set into the context of a future hope, the coming of Messiah, the coming of Jesus Christ, of whom in the very next chapter John the Baptist preaches that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? Because the king has arrived. That's the correspondence between the two episodes of agony. But the logical question is, is, okay, what made this happen? How does Jeremiah have this lament of the inconsolable pain of Rachel weeping for thousands and thousands of her children suddenly turn to joy and the return to Israel to a glorious kingdom someday? What made this happen? Well, now we go from seeing the door crack open to let in a ray of light and hope to the door opening and now we step through it. But here's the surprise. We're not going back to the same place we came from. It's not the same place we stepped into the, to, to the room from. In the context of Jeremiah 31, Rachel was weeping for her children because they continued to rebel and resist God and now all the people paid the price as a nation. Even those who wanted to keep the law of God and faithfulness could only do so externally and using human power at best. The law of God was an outside influence that was God's standard for them for covenant obedience. But listen... The law mocked them. The law shouted at them, you can't keep it. You can't do it. But as we walk back through the door into the light, it's no longer to a place where the law mocks the Israelite who is unable to keep it under the old covenant. Now, there's a new time and we come to a new place found again in Jeremiah 31. Because Jeremiah 31, 31 says, Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will cut a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I cut with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke. But I was a husband to them, declares Yahweh. But this is the covenant which I will cut with the house of Israel after those days, declares Yahweh. I will put my law within them. And on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, No, Yahweh, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares Yahweh, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. You see, it's the promise coming of the new covenant in which the Spirit of God writes His law on the hearts of His people changing them into new creations who are justified and sanctified and glorified. Now the connection between Jeremiah 31.15 and Matthew, Matthew's use of that prophecy to refer to the time of Jesus' birth, it becomes clear. What's the connection point? What's the thread between them? What's the bridge that connects them? It's the new covenant. That's the connecting point. Because if you look back into that room that room of other blackness and despair and grief and agony, if you look back in there and look carefully, 
Someone was in there with you all the time. Someone who was there with those grieving mothers at Ramah all the time. Someone who was with Rachel in there all the time. Because if you look closely in the darkness, a darkness so black and so terrible, you can't see your hand in front of your face. But with eyes of faith, you can see someone in the darkness. And who you see is Jesus on a cross. Suffering physically at an excruciating level, but about to suffer grief beyond the mothers of Bethlehem. Grief beyond the mothers of Ramah. Grief beyond Rachel. Because this is the grief of the Son of God who's about to experience the wrath of God. The equivalent of the eternal wrath of God poured out on all who would believe. Wrath and rejection. And where will he experience it? Matthew 27, beginning in verse 45, now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The death of Christ was the way that God provided for his people, for you and for me, to be recipients of the new covenant in Christ, to come into the kingdom. To be part of his kingdom. That's the grief that Jesus Christ experienced on the cross in order to make a way of salvation for his people and for all of us possible. To make all the delights of the coming kingdom that I described in Jeremiah 31 to make it available. And then if you look into that room of darkness once again, you see the cross still there, but it's empty. It's empty. That Jesus Christ has conquered death. He was raised from the dead, having paid the full penalty of sin for all who would trust in Him. So what's the connection between Jeremiah 31.15 and Matthew 2.17 and 18? They're both laments that happen in the context of great eternal hope. Jeremiah 31, the new covenant and the millennial kingdom blessings due to the new covenant In Matthew 2, the coming of Christ and His offer of the kingdom of God to any who would repent. The kingdom is offered through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Christ, which makes the new covenant possible. There's one person, if I had the ability to do this, at the very beginning of Christ's reign on earth, there's one person in Israel, whose face I would like to see. I'd like to see what Rachel's face looks like. I'd like to see what she experiences in the coming kingdom of Christ, her children and her grandchildren and her great-grandchildren alive and resurrected and home. The babies of Bethlehem home as well. And you will come home if you're a recipient of the new covenant by faith in Christ. How is that going to happen All of this brought to you by the Savior Himself who promised in Revelation 21.5, Behold, I am making all things new. Now as much as I would like to just stay out here in the light and leave that eternal room of darkness alone, I'd like for you to look back through that door into the darkness one more time. And I have a simple question for all of you who are listening. I have a simple question for many of you young people in junior high and high school. Do you see yourself in there? Do you see yourself in there? If you're a young person, you think you have time to play with sin, time to delay, time to wait, 
You're in that room, but the door is closing. It is closing. If you have not repented, if you have not turned away from your loyalty and your love for your own sin, if you have not by faith in the Savior who died and was raised again asked for mercy from God through Christ, that door will shut. And the last time it closes, it never opens again for all eternity. And you're shut in that room of grief and despair. You're shut in that eternal place of hopelessness that Jesus calls the place of weeping, the place of outer darkness. And you'll never leave. But the door's still open. How do I know that? Because you're still alive. And the gospel is being preached to you. Young people, read in the news sometime every week lately. Somebody who's 15, 16, 17, 18 is dropping dead for no reason apparently. It could be you. Don't think because you're 16 years old that you're going to live for 60 more years. You might not live 60 more minutes. And the door is closing. And you might say, oh, it's, it's really wide open and it's closing really slowly. I still have time to run through it. No, it could slam shut in a moment. But you're still alive. Join us who have come out into the light by faith. Those who can say with Paul in Colossians 1.13 that God has rescued us from the authority of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of the Son. Let's pray together. Our Father, the, the Word of God is stunning. It's astounding. It's shocking. From cover to cover, you planned all things and you recorded them in your Word in ways that are repetitious. You repeat yourself over and over in your Word. In Jeremiah 31, we have hope in the coming new covenant, in the coming kingdom. And in Matthew 2, we have hope in the coming kingdom because the king has arrived. So we thank you, Lord, that that room, that horrible place of outer darkness for all who have trusted Christ as Savior, that's a place we will never be. That will never be our future. And in the same token, Lord, we would pray for all who are in that room, who are playing with sin, who are thinking about Christ, but not coming to faith in Christ, who are watching the door slowly close and thinking, I have time. Oh, Lord, I pray that they would heed the warning three times over in the book of Hebrews. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And I pray, Lord, that even this day, a man or a woman or a boy or a girl, a young person who thinks they're invincible would run to the door. For there is one in the Gospel of John who said, I am the door. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. And I pray for all here who know Christ as Savior already that you would thrill their hearts with the hope of a coming kingdom, that their salvation has been ordained and secured that they may walk in that certain hope that all the griefs, all the sorrows, all the blackness and other despair that we have experienced in this life. As Jesus said in Revelation 21, 5, 
will be resolved when he comes to make all things new. Give us the strength to make it to that day. May we look forward with great anticipation to meeting our Savior, the one who instituted the new covenant and who died to make it possible. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.